Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the book I've been working on. It's called Start Finishing, How to Go From Idea to Done, and it will be released on September 24th, 2019. You may already know that I only really care about productivity because it's how we become our best selves in the world. All of us have gaps between what we think we can be, what we dream we can be, who we want to be, and what shows up day to day. Start Finishing bridges those gaps. The book will give you the tools, mindsets, and practices that help you do the stuff your soul is yearning to do, but that somehow seems eternally out of reach. It also features contributions from my personal friends, colleagues, and teachers, such as Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Laura Vanderkam, Jonathan Fields, Susan Piver, Joshua Becker, James Clear, Chelsea Dinsmore, Sereni Rao, and many more. I'm really proud of this book, and I consider it our book rather than my book, meaning that it would not have happened if it weren't for the amazing connections I've made with the Productive Flourishing community over the last 12 years. So, thank you. If you're interested in the book and you want to learn more and maybe pre-order it, check it out at startfinishingbook.com. That's startfinishingbook.com. And now, on to the episode. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E. B-O-X.com forward slash giant. You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Well, as part of that demotion, it actually inspired me to zoom out, reflect deeply at the choices I was making, who I was choosing to learn from, how I was learning. And in the end, it really helped me understand that I'm the one that demoted myself because of the things that I wasn't doing with everything that I had access to around me. It was a really hard lesson to learn at a critical time of my, you know, leadership climb. But man, I'm so happy I learned it now. You know, it tasted like vinegar at the time, Charlie, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it was part of that, part of that struggle. Like we're going to fall and we get to choose how we respond to it. That was Bobby Herrera, co-founder and CEO of Populous Group one of the fastest growing HR services companies in the United States, an army veteran, and the author of The Gift of Struggle. In today's episode, we discuss how powerful it can be to share the stories of your struggles with your team. And we do this by looking at some of the best of Bobby's personal stories. Listen in if you're ready to convert the story of your struggle from something that keeps you from being successful into the gift that it truly is. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. 
Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. For joining me on the podcast today. I'm really excited because all of our conversations have been fantastic. I really um, adore you as a person and your background. And this book, you know, here's what I'll say I usually don't like story driven books, I usually don't like parable books. Um, but this one really hooked me, and the stories have been so good. And the way that they're constructed have been so good that like every time I read one a chapter or two and I'm like, okay, I can get through six, it's only that chapter or two before I got to go think about something. And it shows up in my work a few days later. So one, thanks for writing the book. Two, thanks for showing up on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to this since we got together a couple of months ago, Charlie. I've been cool. eager. So cool. yeah, excited. Uh, all right. So there's a underlying thesis of the book that I really love. Um, and it's really understanding the gift of struggle. And the reason I love that is because so often when we're out there doing our best work, I think people misunderstand what struggle is a sign of, right? Oftentimes they'll see struggle as a sign of they're doing the wrong thing, or maybe they're not the right person, or maybe for too many people, they're uniquely defective. If they were somehow better like they wouldn't be struggling as much, but that ain't so. Um, so I've kind of alluded to the core driver of the book, but if you had like two sentences to talk about what the book was about, mm. what would you say those are? I'd be real succinct about it, Charlie, because I think you and I, we, we appreciate that. You know, you, anything that we do in life, I mean, you have to go through pain, suffering, and struggle to get to wisdom. And man, did I learn that the hard way in my leadership journey. And I simply wanted to write a book that I wish someone would have written for me. Not so that I didn't go through that, but more so so I would have had the permission to lead in a manner that I wanted to with my heart. And you know, that's the essence. I wrote the book to give. And uh, some of the feedback I'm getting around it has just been exceptional. It's made my heart sing. Yeah, you mentioned in the green room that um, you've gotten feedback from students of struggle um, who are really embracing different aspects of yourself. So you told me, but I would love for everyone else to sort of hear that particular piece. I got a note a couple of weeks ago from a leader that she's early on in her leadership journey and she had purchased a book and it really resonated with her and she bought it for her team. And a few weeks later, they sat down as a team to discuss the takeaways. And you and I both know that the number one impact that you want to make with your team and as a leader is building trust. And when they sat down and talked about the book and some of the lessons and some of the takeaways, she said they left that conversation a much better team than when they walked in the room. And when you do that, like it's a checkmate game. And as part of that follow-up, she also mentioned to me that it made me feel closer to them and it made me feel like we were more connected, we understood one another, and it just built this sense of camaraderie that you and I 
experience in the military, right? So it's like, there's nothing better than that as a leader. And when your people can relate to you and you can relate to them, it's like, there's nothing you can't do. Then you can focus on the stuff that matters once you build that trust and that unity. So it, uh, you know, when I'm getting feedback and notes like that on how it's helping leaders take control of some of the things that's real important to them that I know I struggled with, it's like that makes it all worthwhile because writing it wasn't on my list, Charlie. Why wasn't it on your list? You know, I, I just hadn't. It, I just hadn't thought about it a whole lot. I'm a storyteller by nature. You know, we talked a little about, a bit about that. Um, my dad was a magnificent storyteller. And so I took a while for me to appreciate that gift that he gave me. And I started doing that. I was out speaking, talking to veterans, telling stories to kids born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide like you and I. And through that journey, I had someone finally tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, you should put some of these stories into the book. And at first I was like, nah, it's not, it's not on my list. And after I started doing it, I got some great guidance. And, you know, like I said, now it, uh, it's opened up some opportunities for me to really connect with people and educate them and, uh, guide them in a way that I wanted to be guided early on in, in my leadership journey. Let's sink into this for a little bit, because I, I imagine that part of the thrill of telling stories is that live interaction, seeing that aha, seeing people's, right. you know, emotional journey as you're telling the story. And in some ways that can be a crutch for us thinking about like actually making the story so that you, you're not the storyteller anymore, and there, it's not that passive experience. How are you dealing with that aspect of things that you don't get to see sort of that that journey anymore? Well, you mean with the book and, yeah. and that direct connection? Because you're right, it's different. When you're in front of an audience, you can see that the story face and you can see them engaged in the message, which is a very fulfilling uh, part of this journey for me. I'm actually getting it a different way now, Charlie, because some of the notes that I'm getting, some of the feedback that I'm getting, people are sharing with me how they're applying some of the lessons. And you and I both know that, uh, like, that's it. That's where the magic happens, right? And so now I'm getting fulfillment in a way that you know, they're responding and reaching out to me and saying, look, this helped me do X as a leader. This helped me do Y with my team. And you and I both know that just because you read something, that's the 1%. But actually doing it and applying it, that's the 99%. So that fulfillment now is coming back to me in a way that, like, good. They can actually do something with it. Uh, that's, that's what matters. You know, that reminds me of one of the um, chapters I was going to bring up. Let me make sure that I um, give the right name of it. Um, not the T-chart, but I do want to come back to the T-chart. Um, yeah. Maybe it was. It was the one where you were talking about um, finally putting Maxwell's first book on your... Um, yeah, that was with Dr. Joe. Yeah, it was Dr. Joe. Right. Um, and the importance of implementing um, and, and taking action on mm -hmm. things. So tell us a little story about Dr. Joe. 
Yeah, I met Dr. Joe in the late 90s, and it was early in my leadership career. And I had had, I'd been promoted into my first like macro level, large scale leadership job. And I had more responsibility than I was ready for. And I was overwhelmed. I wasn't doing very well. Yet at the same time, we were growing so fast that we were quite frankly, just a bunch of kids managing kids. And so this organization that I was with that, uh, saw something in me, they brought in Dr. Joe and he's an industrial psychologist. He's forgotten more about human behavior than most people know. And it was my first like executive feedback session. And I went through this session completely uncharted waters for me. And in that feedback session with Dr. Joe, one of the things that he picked up on was that, look, you have a lot of potential, you have a lot of ambition, you have a lot of those attributes that are going to serve you well, but you have one that is going to be your downfall if you don't get a grip on it. And it was the fact that I was one of those kids that was well-intended. I'd go to the bookstore and I'd just randomly pick like five leadership books. I'd start one, maybe get a few chapters in, start another one. If I'm lucky, get one chapter in. And the rest of them, they just became expensive coasters. So not only did I not know who I was studying, I was a horrible student. Well, Dr. Joe figured that out about me in that session and gave me some good, candid feedback on how I needed to change that. Well, one of the first things that he did was had me pick out, he taught me how to pick out someone that I needed to learn from, right? And secondly, he taught me the essence of what it meant to be a real student. And that's where I got that, hey, 1% versus 99% because you're a production guy, right? And I was caught up in the essence that it's about what you read. It's about what you study. It's not, yeah, I wasn't doing anything with the most important part. I wasn't applying anything that I was learning. And I talk in the book about how I connected those two and more than anything, how it transformed my, you know, leadership journey at a time when I needed to get my act together. So I share that one pretty early on in the, in the, in the book because, you know, applications, everything doesn't matter what you know. It's matter what you do, what you know. Yeah. I found the placement of that one really interesting because it followed, um, the demotion chapter. Uh-huh. Right. And I, you know, I know who you are and I know your voice and you know, the, the, the person, you know, your boss is basically like, I don't think you're good at business and you don't know what a good director right. looks like. And you're like, what the hell? I've got this degree. I've got this, I've got this education. I know what I'm doing. And then, um, I'll tell that story. So, yeah. Yeah. It was around that same time frame. Uh, I got demoted from that job and man did, I mean, my ego was bigger than, you know, the building I was in and I quite frankly, hadn't been, you know, delivering and I took it very personal. It was a massive shot to my ego. And I talk about that experience in the book on, not only how I responded, but initially I was deflecting. Like I was pointing at everybody but myself. 
and the essence of that lesson was, you know, hey, own your part. And every problem we're a part of, we somehow contribute. We may be able to, we may not be able to control the dynamics of it, but you can guarantee that we had some form of contribution. Well, as part of that demotion, it actually inspired me to zoom out, reflect deeply at the choices I was making, who I was choosing to learn from, how I was learning. And in the end, it really helped me understand that, like, I didn't, I, I'm the one that demoted myself because of the things that I wasn't doing with everything that I had access to around me. It was a really hard lesson to learn at a critical time of my you know, leadership climb. But man, I'm so happy I learned it now. You know, it tasted like vinegar at the time, Charlie, but uh, you know, it was part of, that, part of that struggle. Like we're gonna fall and we get to choose how we respond to it. Well, what I loved about that particular story was like, you realize that the part of the doing that you weren't doing was asking for help. Right. Exactly and, right. And who you were asking help from. And that's a really important piece. So sort of pull folks in, um, you know, it's you weren't asking for help from one people. Well, you were asking for help, but you were asking at peer level folks. It was most mostly complaining about the current situation. Exactly. Right. And not the right people that could actually mentor you and take you forward. Um, and I think that is what we do so often in our journeys of struggle is we look and we're like, I'm going to ask for help, but we we ask for the easy help, right? We ask for that help that we don't have to be vulnerable. We don't have to like admit that we might not know how to do what we think we know how to do, or we might not know what we need to know, or we might not be the person that other people think. It's like, like if you ask for help, like the fraud police are going to show up at your house and finally catch you and lock you away. And so what we do is we ask for help for in the wrong places and we end up in commiseration groups more so than actually growth groups. Right. That's right. I appreciate you bringing that up because I was asking for help in very comfortable environments and you and I both know nothing happens in that environment. Whereas after I finally experienced that demotion, I was in a place of discomfort being in a new role. However, I had to lean into that and identify people that were going to tell me what I needed to hear not what I wanted to hear. And as part of that experience, I ended up coming out a much better business person, a much better leader. And what it really helped me understand is that it wasn't about what I wasn't getting or what I perceived that I wasn't getting. It was about me owning my part and that ultimately I have a lot more control around a situation than I thought I did. And man, did that transform my mindset after that experience, because it helped me really understand, wow, I get to choose exactly who I get to learn from, what I get to learn, and how I apply what I learn. Invaluable lessons if you want to build something meaningful. You know, what's really interesting, I'm going to pull this context in here, because, you know, you're one of 13 children from a migrant family. Um, and also in the military, we, we share a lot of similarities. I'm not one of 13 children from a migrant family, but there's certain parts of the opportunity divide to use your language in the United States. Like you don't, you don't natively learn how much that you don't natively learn that you can control as much around you as possible, right. As right. you actually can. 
And so I did want to tie in that because a lot of times when we're talking about leadership and owning our responsibility and just that sort of thing, it can seem like it's coming from a place of privilege because like, yeah, that's a certain type of people who can control a lot of things. Um, but the more you dig into it, it's like that may be true, but also it's not just for people that come from those backgrounds. It's a lesson that we all have to learn. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, Charlie, I'm going to lean into that a little bit because you're right. A lot of times we have these alpha myths and this dogma that, Hey, to be in a position of influence, you have to have come from a certain background or have come from, you know, certain elements that you get exposure that other people don't get. And let's not downplay that. That's there, there is that reality out there. However, you know, growing up the way that I did as one of 13 in a migrant farm working family, you know, we were introduced to struggle and hardship from moment one. And I had more reverse role models around me than I care to admit. And, you know, I, I, I talk about early on in that, uh, in the book, the first chapter the bus story on how an act of kindness from a very successful businessman, you know, changed, changed the course for me. And, you know, what Mr. Teague taught me in that moment was that the most important part of leadership is seeing an encouraging potential. Because the narrative that I had at that time was, hey, successful people like him, they don't see kids like me. And with one simple act of kindness, he not only showed me that I was wrong, but he showed, he gave me permission to do the same for other people in the future. So. Yeah. I mean, there's a super tricky boundary here or, or balance here. Cause you're right. The reality exists of realities of privilege and things like that do exist. And there's also this moment of responsibility, like mm -hmm. just because you may not start the race at the same space, doesn't mean that you right. get out of the responsibility to run. Yeah, right? you know? exactly. And so that, that's kind of the, the point there. Um, Charlie, do you, do you mind if there's a, a real simple story I want to tell around that, that I, I was speaking to a group of kids in the Seattle area a few years ago. It's part of a wonderful organization that gives, you know, kids that were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide a bridge year. Most of them were high school dropouts trying to get a grip on their life before, you know, they go to college, et cetera. And it was a pretty good sized crowd. And I went in and I told them a few stories, many that are in the book. And then after we opened it up to Q and A and that's my favorite part. And there was a few simple softball questions in the beginning. And then about three questions in this kid that had caught my eye was sitting on the front row, early twenties, really sharp dressed kid. And he raised his hand and he asked me, he said, you know, Bobby, when you were getting started, how did you get past the color thing? And I looked at him and I said, hey, I appreciate you asking that question. Do you mind if I ask you a question before I answer that? He goes, sure. I asked him, are you fast? And he looked at me and he was a little bit confused. And he was a real athletic looking kid. And he said, Yeah. And I said, um, well, why don't you come up on stage? I'll bet I could beat you in a race. 
and his eyes got all big. Everyone got all excited. You know, there was a bunch of kids in the, in the, in the audience got all amped up. Well, I invited him up on stage and the kids were, you know, getting amped up. I'm talking in his ear. Hey, I'm going to smoke you with dress shoes on, et cetera, et cetera. And so we stood on one side of the stage and this gal that introduced me, she was on the other side and she goes to start us. Right? I had him thinking that we were going to have this race right in front of everybody. And the girl says, on your mark, get set. And at that moment, I put my hand out in front of him. And I looked at him and I said, what were you thinking of when you were on that line? And he looked at me and he said, you know, beating you. And then I asked him, did you care what color I was? And he just shook his head and smiled and he said, no. Well, this kid was a sharp-dressed, young black kid. And here I am, this you know, Latino entrepreneur that he doesn't see very many of. But uh, immediately at that point in time, he realized that I understood what his real question was. See, his question wasn't about color, although we know that's real. His question was, hey, Bobby, how do I take control of that story? This, how do I take control of my story? And I just said, look, doesn't matter what race you're in. doesn't matter who's to the left or right of you. Just run, right? And every time you run, run a second faster than you did the, the, the previous time. That's really what this game's about. And I wanted him to take that message away because we can believe the narrative that all these things around us really are holding us down. They're real, but they're not holding us down as much as we think they are. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those things we can always look in the rearview mirror about. There are certain things that we are going to regret in our life, right? Certain chances we didn't take, so on and so forth. And in the moment, as we're thinking about our opportunity set and what we should do, a lot of those stories weigh on us. But when we look backwards, it's not like, well, like we, well, here's what I'll say. We realize that there were things that were within our control and we didn't take that chance. And that's what we're frustrated about. Not all the things that were outside of our control, right? Exactly. Um, and so, but there's that's two sort of modes of being that we get stuck mm -hmm. in. Because again, when you're in that moment and maybe looking forward, you see the external struggles placed upon you and those are real and looming. But when you look backwards down the road, you realize what really mattered was your own choices and those chances you didn't take. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Charlie, I want to go back to the beginning when you asked me, you know, in a sense, why I wrote the book. Well, my leadership philosophy is pretty simple. That is, we all struggle. Every struggle teaches us something. That's the gift. And leadership is sharing those gifts. Well, if you zoom out and you look at the structure of the book, you know, I broke it out in three parts and there's a total of a dozen lessons throughout the book. But you know better than most, leadership isn't a chronological checklist. Right? It's dependent on where we are in our journey. Right? First and foremost, it starts with, hey, who am I? And it's an inside job and developing that purpose so that you can build something meaningful. But the reason I'm bringing this up now is a lot of times during my leadership journey, and the way I structured the lessons in those book in the book is, I, we we I believe we have 
more insight than we give ourselves credit for. And so I use story and some of the lessons and how I applied some of the gifts that I learned from my struggles. And then I ended every chapter with a series of questions to help provoke thought for the reader to then say, okay, how does this apply with the journey that I'm on and how is it relevant? Because you and I both know that once you get into that mode of really leading yourself and asking yourself these deep, meaningful questions, you'll come up with directionally where you need to go more often than not. Yeah, it reminded me of a quote I read back when I was, um, I was, this is what, 2004. And I was going through transportation um, officer basics uh, course. And so down at, um, was that at Eustace? It doesn't matter where I was. I, I was training. And the quote was, whenever you have a problem in your organization, start um, with, um, what was it? Start with ever larger concentric circles focused on yourself. So you start with yourself in the center of what's going on in your organization and really try to fix the problems that's going on there. And then you go out another layer who's in my immediate team around me and you work there and then you work on you work on, which is sound. It makes sense, but it's the exact opposite of what we often will do as leaders. Like we'll see a lying person do something and it's wrong or it's incorrect. And we'll sort of focus on that and not say like, whoa, wait a second. Unless it's safe, unless it's you know unsafe. If it's unsafe, stop it. But we all know that, right? Right. Um, but what we'll do is we'll look at that and say, okay, what's wrong with them? What what happened there? And not think, ooh, you know, how did this particular behavior manifest from something that I may have done in the systems that I've created around myself, right? And so it kind of goes back to your point about asking those questions from the leader. Like you can ask a lot of questions about your organization. You can get all in this sort of strategy Sudoku, and you can have fun with all that. But that hard question is like, and I love Tom Peters for this, like, what am I doing in the next 15 seconds? <laughs> right. What, oh, yeah. what did I do in the last 15 seconds? Like, what does that really mean for this organization? And that's where you start your locus of control from. No doubt. I mean, we talked earlier about Dr. Joe. He taught me early on during that experience that you're not allowed to change anybody until you change yourself. And like, that's the essence of of leadership and why I started the beginning part of it with, Hey, who am I? And there's three sections of, uh, three chapters in that section dedicated to, you know, reflecting inside at why you're doing it, how you're doing it. And starting with that pillar so that you can then figure out how you positively want to impact those around you. Like it, it's an overused cliche in leadership, but it does start with you. Too often, though, it's it's not modeled that way. Too often. Um, you know, the writing journey is an interesting one. And you're in this space where it's sort of a memoir, but it's not really directly a memoir. Right. Um, and the reason I sort of frame it that way is because sometimes telling your own stories can be really challenging. Um, from... This particular book, which of the stories challenge you the most to put to paper and to have it be um, out there in the world? You mentioned it earlier, the stop or go, right? The T-chart. Uh, that was a real difficult chapter for me to write because it was about a very hard personal struggle with my son. 
And that experience rocked me to the core on how we were guiding him and some of the challenges that we had. And then how I took that experience and translated it over to my leadership career and how I was guiding people in an encouraging way versus a discouraging way. Um, but I think the question that you ask is maybe, you know, bigger than that in that, um, one of the things that I didn't want from the book is I didn't want it to come off at a, as a look at me, look at me type of thing, right? Like I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted to figure out a way to use the power of story to help provoke thought and reflection in the reader's mind so that they could connect to it and relate to it in a way that felt real. And ultimately, uh, you know, some of the feedback that I've gotten around is like, hey, Bobby, I could relate to this story or this story really made me think about, you know, my family's journey or me raising my son and daughter. And you know, that's been real fulfilling because it's it wouldn't have been a fulfilling journey for me if all they read was, okay, this person's, you know, talking about themselves. Like, no, they don't care about my story. They care about their story. And I know that. That's just the way the world works, right? I feel like good stories should give the reader something that they can take from to make their life better. So, yeah, but it's tricky. It's hard to do that. It's super hard to do that. And it reminds me of, and I'm stealing this from Jeffrey Davis. Um, I don't know where he stole it from or if he came up with it himself, but um, Jeffrey Davis is the bomb. Um, but he's like, a story is, it's either a window or a mirror. Like it's one of those two. Sometimes it can be both, but you're either right. reflecting back someone's own reality or you're taking, you're showing them a window for another world, right? A lot of yours are mirror stories and that you're trying to f have people find their own stories within yours, right? As opposed to necessarily to transport you into the mythical and wonderful world of Bobby. Right. Because that world has been anything but that. Yeah. And I wanted to be real intentional about highlighting the infinite list of mistakes that I made applying those lessons. And you know, too often, a lot of the books that I'd read, you know, there's countless great ones out there. And many of them sit on my Bible row. And I talk about that in the book. But too often, uh, the leadership books that I'd read were you know, that it's like, okay, well, it made, it put this, it's, it put this pressure on me mm -hmm. that I didn't know if I could do it. I'm like, man, these people are perfect. I can't be that way. So I was very intentional about highlighting a lot of the mistakes that I made trying to apply those lessons. So I hope you took that out of it because that was a real strong signal I wanted to send. Like you're going to be imperfect and that's okay. You know, I think, you probably just explained why I like the story structure so much of this one, because from a meta view, um, it actually reminds me of army stories. Like there I was in the mud, right? right. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, like what happened in this scenario? And you sort of, I mean, the funny thing where you are in your career, obviously you've been successful. Obviously you've done and built great things, but it's like every time we catch you in the mud, <laughs> right. And how you crawled your way out of it. And I, I personally really love those stories. Um, even if I'm terrible about tearing my own, uh, telling my own there, I was in the mud stories. Um, but I think I, I'm glad we, we got here because I was, I was like, what is it about this that I like so much? And it is that reality that leadership, um, leadership, creativity, 
doing work that matters, it's messy, man. You're going to be in mud a lot. <laughs> A right. Lot. <laughs> a lot. Right. Yeah. And and then like when you see the real deal, what you realize is that most of the time when you've seen people where they're polished and clean, it's because, you know, that's been an intentional break in the mud. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they've done something different. It's like, OK, let's do this little parade. Let's have this little inspection and everything looks clean. And then right after they get off stage or right after, you're, you know, they do their next thing and they're back in the mud again. Right. Um, doing doing what they do. And that's, you know. There's nothing wrong with the mud. That's where the work happens, right? And I think that's what we want to get across in both of our work is that don't look at the mud. Don't look at the struggle. Don't look at those places where, you know, there you are, teeth in the dirt and think, you know what? Like maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe something's like wrong in that macro level. It's just like you're in the dirt. What are you going to do about it, right? That's right. That's right. You know, uh, I'm going to borrow a metaphor here that – it's like we all we all know that scar tissue heals stronger and broken bones heal stronger. Yet more often than not, we we smother struggle and like, no, like talk about it. Right? That doesn't mean you air your dirty laundry, but utilize it as the source of empowerment that it is. And I wanted to transform how people view struggle because too often it's viewed as a a, as a weakness, as a form of like, hey, this, my, my team will view me in a lesser light if I talk about it. I'm like, no, they won't. They'll actually think you're human. They'll want to help you and they'll see that you are a real individual. So participate in your own rescue here and use it as the source of empowerment that it is. Because it is messy. And you and I see it in the entrepreneurial community all the time. People want to talk about the glamour. And uh, and I'm like, hey, I'm not going to have any f- bit of that conversation with you because it's not, it's not like that. You're going to get muddy. You're going to get dirty. You're going to fall again and again and again. So let's talk about the real stuff. Let's talk about the real stuff indeed. And, you know, I had someone ask me um, – over dinner last week, she was like, you know, Charlie, you talk a lot about tenacity and courage and sticking with stuff and resilience. And, you know, do you think maybe your military background has has given you an edge in being able to do some of those? Like her question under the question felt like, is it just you aliens out there that that have, you know, come from migrant families and have been in the military that are able to do this? Or how does that um, how does that relate to me? Because it doesn't feel super native for me to be comfortable laying in the mud and struggling, right? I haven't learned how to do that. Well, she didn't say I haven't learned how to do that. Um, that's where the conversation went. But how do you think your military and family background primed you to be able to sort of um, crawl through the mud and keep going in ways that other people find may find challenging? Well, the military actually filled some real important rigor-based gaps for me, Charlie, because, you know, I was introduced to struggle, economic struggle from day one. Well, it was during my time in the military where I started to reframe that struggle and how I looked at it, right? Because the things that I was experiencing in the military, I'm thinking, wow, I've already been through some pretty serious stuff. Like I got this. Well, the military, you know better than most, like you don't have a choice. 
Like if you're on a mission, if you have to get from point A to point B, like there's no let's stop and turn around. Like you do it. And so where the military really served me is that rigor and that that desire. That desire was there, but the rigor wasn't always there. And the discipline and doing all the things that matter in leadership, like having great debriefs and trusting one another and really building those systems that allow you to capitalize on that ambition and desire. So it served me, I think, more from that perspective because I already had the resilience. But I think a lot of people in the military that don't have it, they get in there, they they get it injected quickly. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, you either get smarter or you get strong. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you absolutely. And that's, I think, kind of the point is resilience, discipline, tenacity, stick to itness, can do positive. Like all of these things are learnable things. Like we, we're not born with them. We might be born into situations that make us learn it sooner rather than later, but right. they're all learnable. Um, and to the point of the book, sharing your struggle, being vulnerable. Um, you know, figuring out how to make that translatable to your team, that doesn't come native for too many people. Maybe if your dad's a native storyteller, it might come a little bit easier, but it's a practicable skill. Right. Um, and just a reminder that anything worth getting good at is worth being bad at at the beginning. Right. No doubt. Um, and no doubt. so, and so just, if you're like, Oh, like I can never really embrace my struggle and tell those stories and really come around with that. Like you've already set the game up so that you can't win. You can do it. It might be a struggle to get there, sure. um, but it's a learnable, practicable skill. Sure. You know, Charlie, the, um, the bus story that I start the book with, right. I, um, you know, that, experience that I had from the bus story that changed how I viewed how I wanted to make a difference. Now, the biggest mistake that I made when I started my, my company populist group is that story was raging like an inferno inside of me. And I talk about it in the book, how I didn't tell that story for almost 10, 11 years until after I started the company and after I did develop the courage and the leadership skill of vulnerability, it changed everything. Like it transformed my company in a, into a community. And that's really what you want when you're building something meaningful. You don't want to build a company. You want to build a community. And had I not told that story, the people that I was surrounding myself with, they wouldn't have really known what was important to me and they wouldn't have understood me and they wouldn't have understood that raging inferno that I had in inside. But once I did, it humanized me. And I, I don't want people to make that mistake. That's why I highlighted that in the very beginning. It's like, Hey, tell your story, let people know the invisible force that drives you. It matters. I, and I wish I would have done it a lot sooner um, than I did. I want people to learn from that. Yeah. You might build a company with your head, but you build a community with your heart. No and doubt. If, and if they can't connect with that, you're never going to build that. No doubt. 
And the reverse is true, right? The quickest way to someone's head is through their heart. And I was trying to pound it in through their head and I was forgetting the most important part. And that's really the essence of it in, you know, the gift of struggle for me is, you know, putting together a series of stories and lessons that give aspiring leaders permission to lead with their heart and their head. It's an and, not an or. Right? And I believe the need for compassionate leadership has never been greater. It, it's an and. It's not an or. But too often, people are more interested in, doing, in being right versus doing what's right. It's like, you can do both. You can build something really successful, really meaningful by leading with compassion. And it's actually uh, more rewarding in the end. Absolutely. You know, books are never done. We just decide at some moment that we're done with them and we got to move on. Right. Um, looking back, is there a story you're like, man, if I had to do it again, mm-hmm. if I got to write a second edition, I have to include that story. What would that story be? <laughs> uh, well, you're right in the throes of it right now, right? Uh, no, my book is done, dude. Like, yeah, I, there, you I, go. There, there are no take backs. Right? <laughs> done. I'm just leading it to uh, the promotion. <laughs> well, from when it went from version. Uh, so yes and no. Now, so the yes part of it is the first version of the manuscript was, it was all over the map. And I had a lot of other stories in there that didn't make this one. But the reason I was trying to combine a leadership and a culture book in one. And so I finally picked a lane. And actually, we zoomed out. And the most important part of storytelling is the editing process. Because that's also the most, one of the most important parts of leadership, right? Is like what you choose to focus on. Mm-hmm. And so we took a lot of the stories out of that first and second version that are more applicable to building culture, creating culture, creating an environment that people want to be a part of, and really cultivating that. So uh, that editing process really helped me segregate the two. They're interconnected, but I wanted this one to be leadership right down the fairway. Mm-hmm. So Bobby, as the gift, well, it's also a gift, but as the guest on today's show, yeah. um, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon mm-hmm. what resonates with you. So what would you invite or um, challenge our listeners to do based upon what we've discussed? Well, the invitation, Charlie, would be uh, to you know, think about you know, when, when the time comes for your story to settle, hopefully not too soon, right? how do you want your story to matter? And really inviting the audience to, to reflect on that. And you know, because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. And as a leader, it, you, every choice that you make and how you choose to lead is going to have a direct impact on that, right? So my invitation would be to really reflect deeply on that and get a real good grip on that because you get one act. There are no second chances at this game that we're playing. And we take that for granted. Well, I learned very, very early on 
through some very fortunate mentorships that like I get to choose not control everything, but I get to choose how I want that story to matter. Right. So that would be my invitation. Tell me again, the second part. That was it. Yeah, Um, there we go. I thought, I think I cross pollinated the two pretty well. Right. Um, but I, I, uh, you know, I had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to do something that I'd been waiting 33 years to do. Uh, I bought the gentleman that stepped on board the bus, uh, and bought me a meal and changed, changed a life, changed my life. I bought him a meal two weeks ago and it was a real special moment for me because like my story came back full circle from something that inspired me to pay my lessons forward to finally buying him a meal. And it was a real special moment for me, Charlie, because I wanted him to know that a one simple act of leadership changed the course for me. And it started with kindness and compassion. And in the end, I think those are two of the most important attributes and skills of leadership and building something special. And it, you know, it starts with uh, really reflect on how you want your story to matter in the end. Bobby, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a blast. Look forward to our next conversation. Likewise, Charlie. Thanks for having me, brother. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Bobby. In this one life that you're living, what story are you leaving? And I know that can seem really big, really, really big thing, but let's boil it down to a small act of leadership, a small act of kindness, a small act of courage. So within the next week, how can you take one of those small steps and enhance the story that you're building? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 